afternoon I preach to you the Lord's teaching in the Sixth Commandment. You find that in Exodus 20, verse 13. We'll see what we confess about this. Lord's Day 40 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is on page 555 in the Book of Praise. We remember that the Sixth Commandment is... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not murder. We confess in Lord's Day 40, what does God require in the sixth commandment? I am not to dishonor, hate, injure, or kill my neighbor by thoughts, words, or gestures, and much less by deeds, whether personally or through another. Rather, I am to put away all desire of revenge. Moreover, I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself. Therefore also the government bears the sword to prevent murder. But does this commandment speak only of killing? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that he regards all these as murder. Is it enough, then, that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? No. When God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Beloved Church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, well-written murder mysteries make it clear that most people in the world have a root of murder boiling around inside their hearts. The fact that many countries have adopted hate speech laws reveal the prevalence of sinful contempt that people have in their hearts towards people with different values, perspectives, or religions. We so often fail to see the Creator behind every single person and judge others based merely on the impact that their lives have on our lives. Differences that make people better than us at something make us envious of them. Differences that we can't understand make us feel contempt. Differences that make people hurt us, cause us to be angry and want to seek revenge. And we quickly forget to praise God for the strengths of others and to pray to God for the guidance that others may need in their lives. Rather than be empathetic, our sinful natures make us feel very self-focused Although we might be wise enough to refrain from hurting others physically or even verbally, we find it very difficult to get it into our minds to make that switch from 
only keeping the negative requirements of the Sixth Commandment, the do-not parts, but then moving on from there, we, we forget to move on toward keeping the positive requirement to love, to wish the best for our neighbor. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus explains that merely refraining from harming others is only a half of keeping the Sixth Commandment, which also commands us to love our neighbor. And I preach to you this gospel under the theme, Citizens of God's Kingdom Wish the Best for Their Neighbor. We'll see the extent of Christian love and the responsibility to seek peace. When our Lord Jesus explained the true meaning and the intent of the law of God in the Sermon on the Mount, he contrasted God's teaching, his teaching, with the common understanding of the law in his day. The people had been taught, those of old, that the sixth commandment, forbidding murder, was to be understood only in light of the instruction for judges that those who murdered would be liable to judgment. You can read about that in Numbers 35. This combination of commands, the, the, the commandment and the Ten Commandments, and this further instruction, this combination of these two things limited the sixth commandment to cases where a visible action could be evaluated by judges based on evidence of witnesses. Basically, the Jewish leaders taught that the sixth commandment meant you should not get condemned for murder. And as a result, it was quite possible for people to keep the sixth commandment by simply keeping your hands to yourself so that no one got hurt or injured because of your actions. The law, interpreted as such, still refrained sinful people from murdering one another because everyone knew that if they acted on their hatred or jealousy, they would be punished by the courts. But that's where it stopped. If you have ever defended yourself with the words, but I didn't even touch him, then you're quite familiar with the Jewish leader's specific interpretation of sin against the Sixth Commandment. The Lord Jesus responds to this thinking by separating the instruction given for judges about the enforcement of the law, that's given in Numbers 35, from the actual Sixth Commandment. When we just look at the Sixth Commandment, we see that the commandment not to murder includes much more than just the physical act of murdering a person, for God was addressing the attitudes of our heart. Already in the Old Testament, it was clear that God hated both murder and the root of murder. And these are both very clearly explained in our catechism. Jesus explained to the Jewish leaders that the instruction that ca called judges to condemn murder didn't limit the definition of murder in the Sixth Commandment, but rather required that faithful judges need to punish all that the Lord included in his definition of murder as given in the Sixth Commandment. Jesus said, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Rather than limit condemnation to evidenced murder, 
Jesus says that we are liable to judgment even for hatred or anger that's residing in our hearts. And by ending with a mention of the hell or Gehenna of fire, a punishment that only the Lord himself can carry out, the Lord brings the whole question before the judgment seat of God. What does God want from his creatures? The Lord Jesus' explanation makes it clear that citizens of the kingdom of heaven will want to do more than just refrain from killing someone with their hands. For God, the great judge, is looking at our relationships in all their stages. And Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter, literally, when he says that everyone who is angry with his brother has already broken the sixth commandment in his heart. The mention of a brother places this command into the context of the people of God who belong to the same spiritual family as brothers and sisters under their heavenly Father and who know and believe that God sent His Son to die for sinners, to give them new life in the Holy Spirit. He's speaking about the relationships about people who know the truth very well. Although we have been saved by grace alone, this does not mean that we will never do unwise, uncaring, unkind, or even harmful things to one another. Nevertheless, when a person responds with anger in his heart to a brother, with or without cause, there's some textual question here, the great judge in heaven looks at this as a heart problem that deserves condemnation. The anger Jesus talks about here is not like the anger he showed against sin, which leads us to support sinners in their struggle against sin, like we might support someone who is struggling with a, a disease that we, we both hate. But he is talking about the strong emotion that we feel in our heart that pushes others away, that emotion that creates barriers between two people. Jesus is talking about the anger that springs up from our pride, our selfishness, or our envy. The anger we feel when children disrespect us, when brothers or sisters ignore or mistreat us, or when classmates persistently exclude us. As natural as an angry response may seem to fallen sinners, you can be sure that you won't see that kind of thing in heaven. It just doesn't belong in the church. And such anger in the hearts of believers persisting in that anger, it should stick out like a sore thumb in the church of Jesus Christ. The other two examples that our Lord Jesus gives illustrate this point. For he makes us consider our attitude toward our brother or sister who has done something that gives us the opportunity to feel anger. No one can make you angry except the evil one himself. The root of our anger is a way of seeing other people. Although we might claim bravely, especially when we're younger, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me, we are all aware that we are easily hurt by the negative opinion that another person has of us that led them to call us an unkind name. We know that if we ever 
insult someone. And Jesus uses the example of calling someone raka, which means imbecile or empty head or blockhead. If we ever insult somebody with, with name calling this way, we are really expressing contempt. The contempt that we feel for another person. We are expressing that deep down we feel that they are inferior to us. The words themselves might not cause bruises on their body, but our evaluation of their worth and the dignity of the other person makes it hard to have a friendly relationship as equals together. This attitude expressed by harmful words does not display a desire for their well-being. Think further about what we are revealing about in our hearts when we call someone a fool. Whether Jesus meant the Greek version of referring to senselessness or the Hebrew Aramaic version referring to moral apostasy, the very word fool betrays our evaluation of the value of another person even though they may be younger than we are, just children, or less educated than we are. Beware of that pride of post-secondary degrees. Or maybe they are untrained for the task they are performing because of language barriers or cultural learning or lack of instruction. Even though they might be challenged by special circumstances that make it difficult for them to do the wise thing. Maybe they have a background of abuse or addictions or mental disorders. Any unfriendly response to these differences from us, they are actually reflecting an unloving, an unkind contempt that will be judged by our eternal judge as murder. You could think, for example, when we show contempt instead of concern for someone who has asked for an abortion. We are actually guilty of sin against the same commandment that they are, except that we probably weren't nearly as confused or desperate as they felt when they asked for that. Jesus teaches us that when we believe in our hearts, that someone is useless or someone is a waste of our time or someone is not good enough for us or someone is incompetent or even contemptible, we are really already murdering them in our hearts. And so Jesus' words make us think very carefully about how we talk to our children when they disappoint us makes us think carefully about how we speak to our husbands, our wives, other members of the church, and to do something different than we would have done it? Do we live with realistic expectations based on who people really are and what they know or what they've been asked to do? Are we blinded by very strong ideas about how people should behave in our estimation that are completely prejudiced by our own experiences growing up in a particular context? Do you understand and believe our Lord Jesus' words that you are never 
justified in hurting people, even just a little bit, even just with a thought? That there is never a time to push others away in your anger? That there is never a time to call names and never a time to show contempt? We confess that the sixth commandment reveals that the extent of Christian love includes refraining from murder, repenting from the root of murder shown in the thoughts of your hearts and the words of your mouth, but then also on the positive side, we believe that includes the requirement to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. It's so extensive, it's so extensive that it's really inescapable. How Jesus' teaching drives us to our knees, to his cross, to the promise of the forgiveness of all our sins. We see how much we need that forgiveness. Convicted by the Holy Spirit, we pray that the Lord will forgive us our sins, that he will help us to keep in step with the Holy Spirit by changing us right in our very heart, by changing the way that we see others, to walk as our Lord Jesus walked. Jesus displayed his anger against sin and the consequences of the fall, not by lashing out, not by looking around the world with contempt and insult, but by giving up his own life so that sin could be atoned for and his people could be changed by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. He met the weak sinner. Yes, you and I. He met us with mercy and compassion and patience. He graciously pointed us to the better way, calling us to restore peace with our neighbor through instruction by example in humility, meekness, and love. When we replace our contempt for our neighbor with a sincere desire for their well-being, we'll see how often we're called to make peace. And our Lord Jesus gives two examples to help us to see what it means to be led by the Spirit in obedience to the sixth commandment. Jesus, in the second section, where he starts off with, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, verse 23, he switched his pronouns to the second person singular so that we might imagine ourselves doing these things. You are walking into the temple with an offering to the Lord. Or perhaps to make it more real for us today, you are about to do something like confess your sins before the Lord and receive that declaration that your sins are forgiven. Maybe you're doing that in a church service or in the celebration of Lord's Supper. You are fully aware that you have peace with God only through Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of your sins. You have experienced his grace in your life and then this gets you thinking about how you are treating others. The Lord Jesus taught us about this connection, the connection between worshiping God and seeking peace with your neighbor in the Lord's Prayer. When he taught us to pray, 
forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then our Lord Jesus went on to illustrate this with that parable about the different reactions of the two debtors whose debts are forgiven by the king. If you'd like to read up on that, that's in Matthew 18. John explains the connection between our worship of God and our relationship to our neighbor when he says in 1 John 4, verse 20 and 21, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so overwhelmed by God's love to us in granting us his grace, the Holy Spirit, through his word, he leads our minds to, to think of our brothers and sisters, even as we are worshiping the Lord. And to see that although we might prefer to just ignore the problem and continue our worship and just look at God instead of all those issues, the Holy Spirit leads us through the sixth commandment to seek peace with our neighbor. That's very striking that the Lord Jesus doesn't put the onus of responsibility on the person who has something against his brother, but on the person who remembers that his brother has something against him. Even though you might feel that you have done everything you can, you can't even see a point to it. Or you know that the other person should be the one initiating the conversation with you if they feel wronged, according to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18. As long as the other person hasn't commanded you to leave them alone and you have an opportunity to talk, Jesus tells you that you should go to them first. You must understand that the person may have reasons for not confronting you about your sin against them. For example, there might be an imbalance of power and they are afraid to confront you. Or perhaps they have been hurt before and they don't feel that they cannot trust others. Or they are afraid that they're just being unreasonable. Or they are simply lazy. Or they don't love you enough to care whether or not you repent. By putting the weight of the responsibility on the people who know that someone has something against them, Jesus basically tells us not to be hindered by the failure of other people to do what they should and to love them anyways by seeking them out. The problem is that if you just leave it and you, you hope the problem will just go away like we so often do in our, in our marriages or in a church setting, things will not go well for the other person who may be holding on to bitterness or resentment or anger. And worse still, there will be ongoing separation among the members of the body of Christ. And our Lord's words show the urgency of seeking reconciliation when he tells God's people to leave the gift at the altar and first be reconciled to your brother. It's almost like he's saying just let God wait, let the worship of God wait for a while. That order is important because unless you deal with the conflict, you yourself will never be able to truly worship God in sincerity and truth. The case that Jesus presents here in the Sermon on the Mount 
actually does not even take long to reconcile. It indicates that the person making the offering, the you in, in, in the story, could resolve it by simply humbling himself before his brother or sister, confessing any sins, and expressing a desire to continue to live in peace. And once the reconciliation is complete with our neighbor, Jesus then says, don't just leave it there, but go back and offer your gift to the Lord. Although it's a priority to seek reconciliation when we have committed an offense against our neighbor, our relationship to our neighbor is a part of our worship of the Lord. It must never come at the cost of faithfulness to the Lord. After confessing our sin to our neighbor, we must return to the Lord, confess our sins before Him. And the gospel message is that God's arms are open to receive us through Jesus Christ, who forgives us even immediately after we have had to go to ask forgiveness of others. He allows us to again experience peace and unity in His kingdom. In his second example that our Lord Jesus gives, in verse, starting at verse 25, our Lord doesn't mention that the accuser is a brother, which may explain why that person is taking such an aggressive legal action. Like the previous example, you, singular again, have committed an offense that is punishable by a judge, but in this example, the person you offended might not be so open to receive your pleas for forgiveness. What kind of attitude should you take toward this kind of adversary, this kind of accuser? Well, Jesus says that you should seek to come to terms with him. And he uses a word that has a sense of being friendly, being well disposed. A heart that truly understands the depth of the sixth commandment will show humility no matter who we are dealing with. And will continue to seek to restore relationships even to the last minute when you are going with him to the court. Now Jesus is not telling us that we shouldn't accept the consequences of our actions, but rather that we should care very much about the people we have hurt. We should make it our desire that they know that we are repentant, that we desire to treat them with dignity and restore broken relationships. Jesus reminds us that whether or not your humility changes your accuser's heart, and whether or not you are sentenced by an earthly judge for your offenses, the great judge in heaven is also watching. He is looking at your heart. And if we are too proud, too filled with hatred or resentment to humble ourselves and to seek reconciliation, then you can know that as certainly as a judge on earth will never let you out until you pay the last penny, so certainly the Lord God in heaven will punish you for persisting in sin against the sixth commandment. And Jesus' words make us think about any broken relationships in our lives in the context of the grace of God, in the context of the forgiveness of sins that he has obtained for us by his death on the cross. Have we shown evidence of God's grace in our hearts by our desire to forgive others, to seek peace? Jesus makes us think about anyone who might have something against us in the context 
of the peace that is promised us in the kingdom of heaven. Again, he has us seeing the, the big picture. Are you sincerely bothered by the barrier that separates you from a brother or a sister? And have you done what you need to to seek peace? Jesus also makes us think about how we see other people in the context of their dignity, their value, in the eyes of God who created them in his image. Are you looking down your nose at anyone as if you were superior to them before God in some way? Christ's work makes reconciliation between brothers and sisters possible because he has paid the debt that we owe to God for our unrighteousness. He bore the punishment that we deserve for our sins. He has shown us what real love looks like when he obeyed the sixth commandment for us and in our place. He leads us by the Spirit to now walk in that real love. Real love doesn't look down on someone because they are a sinner. Jesus came and lived among us, even though he knew very well that we were sinners. Though he was strong and righteous and holy, he became weak for our sakes. He came to us in our sins, in our weakness, in our rebellion, in our incompetence, in our anger, in our contempt. And he gave his life for us. Led by the Holy Spirit in our life as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, granted his grace, overflowing in our lives, we want to do the same for our neighbors. And may he lead us by his spirit in this grace so that we may truly show that we wish the best for our neighbors. Amen. We'll now sing together in response the celebratory hymn of the work of the Holy Spirit who dwells in our hearts, who leads us together as members of the body of Christ and bids us to live in unity and peace. Hymn 50, we'll sing all the stanzas, standing if you're able to stand.